0: Chapter Five, of at the time appointed. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording done by Jules harlock of Mississauga, Ontario, Canada, at the time appointed by A. Maynard Barbour. Chapter 5, John Britton It was on one of those glorious October days when every breath quickens the blood and when simply to live is a joy unspeakable that Darrell first walked abroad into the outdoor world. Several times during his convalescence, he had sunned himself on the balcony opening from his room or, when able to go downstairs, had paced feebly up and down the verandas. But of late his strength had returned rapidly, so that now, accompanied by his physician, he was walking back and forth over the graveled driveway under the pine trees, his steps gaining firmness with every turn. Seated on the veranda were Mr. Underwood and his sister, the one with his pipe and newspaper, the other with her knitting. But the newspaper had slipped unheeded to the floor, and though Mrs. Dean's skillful fingers did not slacken their work for an instant, yet her eyes, like her brother's, were fastened upon Darrell, and a shade of pity might have been detected in the look of each, which the occasion at first sight hardly seemed to warrant. Poor fellow, said Mr. Underwood at length, It's hard for a young man to be handicapped like that. Yes, assented his sister. And he takes it hard, too, though he doesn't say much. I can't bear to look in his eyes sometimes. They look sort of pleading and helpless. Takes it hard, reiterated Mr. Underwood. Why shouldn't he? I'm satisfied that he is a young man of unusual ability who had a bright future before him And I tell you, Marcia, it's pretty hard for him to wake up and find it all rubbed off the slate. Well, said Mrs. Dean with a sigh, everybody has to carry their own burdens. But there's a look on his face when he thinks nobody sees him that makes me wish I could help him carry his. Though I don't suppose anybody can, for that matter. It isn't anything that anybody feels like saying much about. I'm glad Jack is coming, said Mr. Underwood after a pause. He may do him some good. He has a way of getting at those things that you and I haven't, Marcia. Yes, he's seen trouble himself, though nobody knows what it was. Notwithstanding the tide of returning vitality was fast restoring tissue and muscle to Daryl's wasted limbs and firmness and elasticity to his step it was yet evident to a close observer that some undercurrent of suffering was doing its work day by day sprinkling the dark hair with gleams of silver tracing faint lines in the face hitherto untouched by care working its subtle mysterious changes when a new lease of life was granted to john darrell and he awoke to consciousness it was to find that every detail of his past life had been blotted out, leaving only a blank of his home, his friends of his own name even, not a vestige of memory was left. It was as though he had entered upon a new existence. By degrees, as he was able to hear them, he was given the details of his arrival at Ophir, of his coming to the pines of the tragedy which he had witnessed in the sleeping car, but they awoke no memories in his mind. For him, there was no past. As a realization of his condition dawned upon him, his mental distress was pitiable. Despite the efforts of a physician and nurse to divert his mind, he would lie for hours trying to recall some fragment from the veiled and shrouded past, but all in vain. Yet, with returning physical strength, many of his former attainments seemed to return to him naturally and without effort. Dr. Bradley one day used a Latin phrase in his hearing. He at once repeated it and, without a moment's hesitation, gave the correct rendering, but was unable to tell how he did it. It simply came to me, was all the explanation he could give. From this, the physician argued that the memory of his past life would sooner or later return and it was this hope alone which at that time saved darrell from total despair aside from his professional interest in so peculiar a case doctor bradley had become interested in darrell himself many of his leisure hours were spent at the pines and quite a friendship existed between the two in mr underwood and his sister darrell had found two steadfast friends each seeming to vie with the other in thoughtful, unobtrusive kindness. His strange misfortune had only deepened and intensified the sympathy which had been first aroused by the peculiar circumstances under which he had come to them. But now, as then, they said little, and for this Darrell was grateful. Even the silent pity which he read in their eyes hurt him. Why, he could scarcely explain to himself, expressed in words it would have been intolerable. Early in his convalescence, Darrell had expressed an unwillingness to trespass upon their kindness by remaining after he could, with safety, be moved. But the few words they had spoken on that occasion had effectually silenced any further suggestion of the kind on his part he understood that to leave them would be to forfeit their friendship which he well knew was a sort too rare to be slighted or thrown aside of kate underwood darrell knew nothing except as her father or aunt spoke of her for he had no recollection of her and she had left home early in his illness to return to an eastern college from which she would graduate the following year With more animation than he had yet shown since his illness, Darrell returned to the veranda. He was flushed and trembling slightly from the unusual exertion, and Dr. Bradley, dropping down beside him from force of habit, laid his fingers on Darrell's wrist, but the latter shook them off playfully. No more of that, he exclaimed, adding, Doctor, I challenge you for a race two weeks from today what do you say do you take me up two weeks from today repeated the doctor with an incredulous smile at the same time scrutinizing Darrell's form well yes when you are in ordinary health i don't think i would care to do much business with you along that line but two weeks from today is a safe proposition i guess "'What do you want to make it, a hundred yards?' he inquired with a laughing glance at Mr. Underwood. hundred yards,' replied Darrell, following the direction of the doctor's glance. "'Do you want to name the winner, Mr. Underwood?' "'I'll back you, my boy,' said the elder man, quietly his shrewd face growing a trifle shrewder. "'What?' exclaimed Dr. Badley, rising hastily. "'I guess it's about time I was going.' If that's your estimate of my athletic prowess. And shaking hands with Darrell, he started down the driveway. I'll put you up at about ten to one, Mr. Underwood called after the retreating figure, but the deprecatory wave of his hand over his shoulder was the doctor's only reply. Oh, exclaimed Darrell, looking about him, this is glorious this is one of the days that makes a fellow feel that life is worth living even as he spoke there came to his mind the thought of what life meant to him and the smile died from his lips and the light from his eyes for a moment nothing was said then with the approaching sound of rhythmic hoof-beats mr underwood rose deliberately emptying the ashes from his pipe as a fair pair of black horses attached to a light carriage appeared around the house from the direction of the stables. You will be back for lunch, David, Mrs. Dean inquired. Yes, and I will bring Jack with me, was his reply as he seated himself beside the driver and the horses started at a brisk trot down the driveway. With a smile, Mrs. Dean addressed Darrell, who was watching the horses with a keen appreciation of their good points. This Jack that you've heard my brother speak of is his partner. Yes, said Darrell courteously, feeling slight interest in the expected guest, but glad of anything to divert his thoughts. Yes, Mrs. Dean continued. They've been partners and friends for more than 10 years. His name is John Britton, but it's never anything but Dave and Jack between the two. They're almost like two boys together. Darrell wondered what manner of man this might be who could transform his silent, stern-faced host into anything boylike, but he said nothing. To see them together, you'd wonder at their friendship too, continued Mrs. Dean, for they're no ways alike my brother is all business and mr Britton is not what you'd really call a practical businessman he is very rich for he is one of those men that everything they touch seems to turn to gold but he doesn't seem to care much about money he spends a great deal of his time in reading and studying and though he makes very few friends he could have any number of them if he wanted for he's one of those people that you always feel drawn to without knowing why. Mrs. Dean paused to count the stitches in her work and Darrell, whose thoughts were of the speaker more than of the subject of conversation, watching her placid face, wondered whether it were possible for any emotion ever to disturb that calm exterior. Presently, she resumed her subject, speaking in low, even tones, with a slight gentle inflection now and then just saved from monotony. He's always a friend to anybody in distress, and I guess there isn't a poor person or a friendless person in Ophir that doesn't know him and love him. He has had some great trouble. Nobody knows what it is, but he told David once that it had changed his whole life. Darrell now became interested, and the dark eyes fixed on Mrs. Dean's face grew suddenly luminous with the quick sympathy her words had aroused. He always seems to be on the lookout for anybody that has trouble t- to help them. That's how he got to know my brother. Mrs. Dean hesitated a moment. I never spoke of this to anyone before, but I thought maybe you would be interested to know about it. She said, looking at Darrell with a slightly apologetic air. I am, and I think I understand and appreciate your motive, was his quiet reply. She dropped her work, folding her hands above it, and her face wore a reminiscent look as she continued. When David's wife died 12 years ago, it was an awful blow to him. He didn't say much. That isn't our way but we were afraid he would never be the same again. His brother was out here at that time, but none of us could do anything for him. He kept on trying to attend to business just as usual, but he seemed, as you might say, to have lost his grip on things. It went on that way for nearly two years. His business got behind, and everything seemed to be slipping through his fingers. When he happened to get acquainted with Mr. Britton, and he seemed to know just what to say and do. He got David interested in business again. He loaned him money to start with, and they went into business together and have been together ever since. They have both been successful, but David has worked and planned for what he has, while Mr. Britton's money seems to come to him. He owns property all over the state and all through the West for that matter, and sometimes he's in one place and sometimes in another, but he never stays very long anywhere. David would like to have him make his home with us, but he told him once that he couldn't think of it, that he only stayed in a place till the pain got to be more than he could bear, and then he went somewhere else. A long silence followed then, as Mrs. Dean folded her work, she said softly, it's no wonder he knows just how to help folks who are in trouble for i guess he has suffered himself more than anybody knows a little later she had gone indoors to superintend the preparations for lunch but Darrell still sat in the mellow autumn sunlight his eyes closed picturing to himself this stranger silently bearing his hidden burden changing from place to place but always keeping the pain it still lacked Two hours of sunset when John Darrell, leaning on the arm of John Britton, walked slowly up the mountain path to a rustic seat under the pines. They had met at lunch. Mr. Britton had already heard the strange story of Darrell's illness and, looking into his eyes with their troubled questioning, their piteous appeal knew at once by swift intuition how hopelessly bewildering and dark life must look to the young man before him just at the age when it usually is brightest and most alluring and darrell meeting the steadfast gaze of the clear gray eyes saw there no pity but something infinitely broader deeper and sweeter and knew intuitively that they were united by the fellowship of suffering that mysterious tie which has not only bound human hearts together in all ages, but has linked suffering humanity with suffering divinity. For more than two hours, Darrell, taking little part himself in the general conversation, had watched as one entranced the play of the fine features and listened to the deep musical voice of this stranger who was a stranger no longer. He was an excellent conversationalist, humorous without being cynical, scholarly without being pedantic, and showing especial familiarity with history and the natural sciences. At last, while walking up and down the broad veranda, Mr. Britton had paused beside Darrell and throwing an arm over his shoulder had said, come my son, let us have a little stroll. Darrell's heart had leaped strangely at the words. He knew not why, and in a silence pregnant with deep emotions on both sides. They had climbed to the rustic bench. Here they sat down. The ground at their feet was carpeted with pine needles. The air was sweet with the fragrance of pines and the warm earth. No sound reached their ears aside from the chirping of the crickets the occasional dropping of a pine cone, or the gentle sighing of the light breeze through the branches above their heads. A glorious scene lay outspread before them, the distant ranges half-veiled in purple haze, the valleys flooded with golden light, brightened by the autumnal tints of deciduous timber, which marked the course of numerous small streams, and over the whole a restful silence. As though the year's work ended, earth was keeping some grand, solemn holiday. Mr. Britton first broke the silence, as in low tones he murmured reverently, Thou crownest the year with thy goodness. Then turning to Darrell with a smile of peculiar sweetness, he said, This is one of what I call the year's coronation days, when even nature herself rests from her labours, and dons her royal robes in honor of the occasion. Then, as an answering light dawned in Darrell's eyes and the tense lines in his face began to relax, Mr. Britton continued musingly. I have often wondered why we do not imitate nature in her great annual holiday, and why we, a nation who garners one of the richest harvests of the world, do not have a national harvest festival. How effectively and fittingly, for instance, something similar to the old Jewish feast of tabernacles might be celebrated in this part of the country. In the earliest days of their history, the Jews were commanded, when the year's harvest had been gathered, to take the boughs of goodly trees, of palm trees and willows, and to construct booths in which they were to dwell, feasting and rejoicing for seven days in the only account given of one of these feasts we read that the people brought olive branches and pine branches myrtle branches and palm branches and made themselves booths upon the roofs of their houses in their courts and in their streets and dwelled in them and there was very great gladness imagine such a scene on these mountain slopes and foothills under these cloudless skies, the somber evergreen boughs interwoven with the brightly colored foliage from the lowlands, this mellow golden sunlight by day alternating with the white mystical radiance of the harvest moon by night. Mr. Britton's words had, as he intended they should, drawn Darrell's thoughts from himself, under his graphic description accompanied by the powerful magnetism of his voice and presence. Darrell seemed to see the oriental festival which he had depicted, and to feel a soothing influence from the very simplicity and beauty of the imaginary scene. Think of the rest, the relaxation in a week of such a life," continued Mr. Britton. Recreation in the true sense of the word. The simplest joys are the sweetest, but our lives have grown too complex for us to appreciate them. Our amusements and recreations, as we call them, are often more wearing and exhausting than our labors. For nearly an hour, Mr. Britton led the conversation on general subjects, carefully avoiding every personal allusion. Darrell, following, interested, animated, wondering more and more at the man beside him until the latter tactfully led him to speak, calmly and dispassionately, as he could not have spoken an hour before of himself. Almost before he was aware, Darrell had told all of his vain gropings in the darkness for some clue to the past of the helpless feeling akin to despair which sometimes took possession of him when he attempted to face the situation continuously confronting him. During his recital, Mr. Britton had thrown his arm about Darrell's shoulder, and when he paused, quite a silence followed. Did it ever occur to you, Mr. Britton said at length, speaking very slowly, that there are hundreds, yes, thousands who would be only too glad to exchange places with you today. No, Darrell replied, too greatly astonished to say more. But there are legions of poor souls haunted by crime or crushed beneath the weight of sorrow, whose one prayer would be, if such a thing were possible, that their past might be blotted out, that they might be free to begin life anew with no memories dogging their steps like specters threatening at every turn to work their undoing for a moment Darrell regarded his friend with a fixed inquiring gaze which gradually changed to a look of comprehension i see he said at length i have got to begin life anew but you consider that there are others who have to make the start under conditions worse than mine far worse said mr britton don't think for a moment that I fail to realize in how many ways you are handicapped or to appreciate the obstacles against which you will have to contend but this I do say the future is in your own hands as much as it is in the hands of any mortal to make the most of and the best of that you can and with a negative advantage at least that you are untrammeled by a past that can hold you back or drag you down. The younger man laid his hand on the knee of the elder with a gesture almost appealing. The future until now had looked very dark to me. It begins to look brighter. Advise me, tell me how best to begin. In one word, said Mr. Britton with a smile, work just as soon as you are able, find some work to do. Did we but know it, work is the surest antidote for the poisonous discontent and the ennui of this world, the swiftest panacea for its pains and miseries. Different forms to suit different cases, but every form brings healing and blessing, even down to the humblest manual labour. That is just what I have wanted, said Darrell eagerly, to go to work as soon as possible. But what can I do? What am I fitted for? I have not the slightest idea. I don't care to work at Breaking Stone, though I suppose that would be better than nothing. That would be better than nothing, said Mr. Britton, smiling again, but that would not be suited to your case. What you need is mental work, something to keep your mind constantly occupied, and rest assured you will find it when you are ready for it. Our Father provides what we need just when we need it. Day by day, we have the daily bread for mental and spiritual life as for temporal. But what you most want to do is to keep your mind pleasantly occupied, and above all things, don't try to recall the past. In God's own good time, it will return of itself. And when it does, what revelations will it bring? Darrell queried musingly nothing that you will be afraid or ashamed to meet of that i am sure said mr Britton, confidently adding a moment later in a lighter tone it is nearing sunset my boy and time that i was taking you back to the house you have given me a new courage new hope said Darrell, rising i feel now as though there were something to live for as though i might make something out of life after all." I realize, said Mr. Britton tenderly, as together they began the descent of the mountain path. As deeply as you do that, your life is sadly disjointed. But strive so to live that when the broken fragments are at last united, they will form one harmonious and symmetrical whole. It is a difficult task, I know, but the result will be well worth the effort. In your case, my son, even more than in ordinary lives, the words of the poet are peculiarly applicable. A sacred burden in this life ye bear. Look on it, lift it, bear it solemnly. Stand up and walk beneath it steadfastly. Fail not for sorrow, falter not for sin, but onward, upward, till the goal ye win. An hour later, John Britton stood alone on one of the mountain terraces. His tall, lithe form silhouetted against the evening sky, his arms folded, his face lifted upward. It was the face of marvelous strength and sweetness combined. Sorrow had set its unmistakable seal upon his features. Here and there, pain had traced its ineffaceable lines, but the firmly set mouth was yet inexpressibly tender the calm brow was unfurrowed and the clear eyes had the far-seeing look of one who like the alpine traveller had reached the heights above the clouds to whose vision were revealed glories undreamed of by the dwellers in the vales below and to Darrell, watching from his room the distant figure outlined against the sky The simple grandeur, the calm triumph of its pose must have brought some revelation concerning this man of whom he knew so little, yet whose personality, even more than his words, had taken so firm a hold upon himself. For as the light faded and the deepening twilight hid the solitary figure from view, he turned from the window, and pacing slowly up and down the room, soliloquized with him for a friend i can meet the future with courage and await with patience the resurrection of the buried past as he had conquered so will i conquer i will scale the heights after him until i stand where he stands tonight end of chapter five